835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Big stuff going on in today's program. Uh, right after the 11 o'clock news, we're going to be joined by Don Smiley from Summerfest to talk about, well, a number of things, including the big announcements yesterday and kind of we'll go behind the scenes a little bit. 11.35, we have our weekend review. Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson, and I will discuss some of the big stories of the week. We will also be live streaming that on Facebook, as we always do. But before that, lots of ground to cover. I wonder who thought this was a good idea for marketing. Hondo, who's producing the show today. Chili's. You ever eat in a Chili's restaurants? You know, I mean, kind of a, you know, Applebee's type of place. You know, they they have some Chili's restaurants around here. Well, um, the Chili's restaurants, which were independently owned franchises in Indiana and Kentucky, decided that they were going to have a promotional idea. So they put coupons in a number of the local papers, and they put them online saying, here's what we're going to do. If you come in and you bring in this particular coupon and you eat at Chili's, we are going to donate 15% of your bill to a local organization. Okay. I mean, sound, absolutely. Sounds, you know, sounds great. Hunger Task Force. I don't know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, YMCA, YWCA, whatever. Okay, it's one of these ideas that you can come in, you can feel good, you can eat. You know, so Chili's wins because they get the business, and they also help contribute something positive. It's sort of like Marquette got fined $5,000 by the Big East because fans stormed the court after Marquette's big win against Villanova the other night. Well, the Big East has a policy. You can't storm the court, so they fined Marquette $5,000, but— the good news is that $5,000 just doesn't go to some anonymous pocket. That $5,000 then goes to a charity of the college's choice. So in this case, Marquette said, we're going to donate the money to Camp Hometown Heroes, which is up in Grafton, and that's uh, it's designed as a summer camp for veterans' uh, children, things like that. So, okay, it's $5,000, but they send it off. So it all works out. So who does, what group What group does Chili's in Indiana and Kentucky decide to donate this 15% to? Planned Parenthood. (laughs) 15% goes to Planned Parenthood. Now, I understand reasonable people can perhaps disagree about, you know, the motives of Planned Parenthood and whether it's a good organization and whether or not it should be defunded. But There's no question that that Planned Parenthood is an extremely controversial organization. And, And yes, you are probably going to attract some customers, but you're going to turn a number of people off. Um, Chili's issues the following statement late yesterday after this became public. At Chili's, we have a longstanding history and take pride in giving back to unite our local communities together. Yeah, that's what Planned Parenthood does. We recognize every community is unique and encourage our restaurant managers and franchise partners to support causes that help bring communities together. Yeah, that's what Planned Parenthood does. And leave a positive impact on our valued guests, neighbors, friends, and families we serve. Yesterday, we learned that an independent franchise partner of Chili's in Indiana and Kentucky made the decision to host a Chili's Give Back event on behalf of Planned Parenthood, Indiana and Kentucky. While our franchise partner had the best intentions, we have received growing feedback and concern from community members regarding this particular Give Back event. You think? The feedback does not reflect Chili's focus on bringing communities together and the event was never intended to be viewed as a partisan event or political statement. Of course not. Let's contribute money to Planned Parenthood. Who would imagine that that would ever be 
interpreted as being a political statement. Therefore, we, along with our franchise partner, have decided to cancel the event. We will more clearly communicate the focus of Chili's charitable giving efforts so that our restaurant managers and franchise partners can feel empowered to support local organizations that bring communities together. But Planned Parenthood would not be one of those. All right. We start off three big things. Donald Trump continues continues to irritate people along the Mexican border. We discuss next. 839 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 842 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Uh, never mix politics with beer, right? Well, that's exactly what the guys on WTMJ today will do when Milwaukee County Executive Chris Abley and Lakefront Brewery's Rush, Russ Klisch sit in for the Friday Forum. It happens at 2.07 today. Check that out. Okay. Last, well, 2015, which is the last year that I have the complete numbers for, we, we in the United States b- brought in almost $300 billion worth of goods from Mexico. This is stuff that was imported in to Mexico. Um, biggest import was cars with hundreds of thousands of Chevrolet and Ram trucks um, that are assembled in Mexican factories. But it's not just cars. Other imports include machinery, medical instrument, uh, instruments, min- mineral fuels. Um, also, the country is the U.S. second biggest provider of agricultural imports, so food. And a lot of the food which is brought in is food that isn't grown in the United States. So we are importing 295 to $300 billion, okay? Um, in contrast... We do not export as much. Um, 2015, the numbers I have, $267 billion exported. So we're bringing in $295. We're sending out $267 uh, billion. We're, we're running a bit of a trade deficit. But this is, I mean, it's a major It's a major deal, and we import a lot of stuff from Mexico. So as everyone knows, Donald Trump is in... Well, kind of a a talking war with Mexico. He wants to build the wall. And, of course, you've got the former Mexican president saying there's no way we're going to build this blanking wall, things like that. Trump is saying, no, no, we're going to build the wall. We're going to build the wall. And we don't care what Mexico says. We're going to figure out a way to make Mexico pay it. So one of the ideas that was floated yesterday by Trump and by some people close to him was – What we're going to do is we will put on a 20% tariff on goods that Mexico sends to the United States, 20%. So, you know, if you're talking about ballpark $300 billion being imported in 2015, you know, a 20% tariff, that's, that's a big deal. That is going to generate a ton of money. Now, later on in the day, some of the Trump aides started to walk back on that, saying, well, that's just one of the ideas we're considering. Big story number one, 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. Would this be a good idea? Obviously, we bring in a lot of goods from Mexico, A lot of car parts, a lot of cars are assembled, but also it's other things as well. Would it be a good idea to impose a 20% tax on all the goods that we are importing from Mexico? And I think maybe there potentially on the plus side, you've got two different arguments. One is that, well, maybe this would 
by increasing the cost, maybe it would encourage more U.S. manufacturers to manufacture stuff in the U.S., and secondly, it would generate revenue to perhaps build the wall. That's the argument for it. There might be some arguments against it, though. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Toll-Free Talk Line. Big thing number one, Donald Trump floating the idea of a 20% tariff on goods and services, uh, goods being imported from Mexico. That would generate a ton of revenue. There would be some other costs as well. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Toll-Free Talk Line. Hondo is lining up the calls. i got to tell you, um, this is one that, that might sound good. That might sound good at the surface, but let's be re- realistic here. If you impose a 20% tax, essentially, on goods that are coming in, who do you think is ultimately going to end up paying that? Yeah, I mean, maybe up front— the importers or the exporters are going to have to pay for it. But is that cost going to get passed along? And do you, as an American consumer, really want to see the cost of your bananas go up by 20%? Just asking. Mark in Whitewater. Mark, you're first. Good morning. Um, you know, this is just to me like ridiculous reaction by Trump because the Mexican president won't meet with him. So, you know, boomerang say something ridiculous like a 20% tariff, Yeah, it'll never happen. <laughs> well, well, tell me, why do you think it's a bad idea, though? Well, it's going to affect the American consumer, American workers, Mexican consumers, and Mexican workers. It's just it's just uh, really bad bullying right. on the part of the Trump administration. Well, how does it, it ex- ma- explain to me why you think it affects uh, American workers? American workers might be saying, yeah, hey, th- th- this, is, this is great. Now, you know, it's going to drive up the cost of goods produced in Mexico. This will be good for us. Some people might argue that. Well, anything that comes into the United States from Mexico has to be handled or distributed. Yeah. It has to be supplied. It has to be put in the stores. Yeah. It has to be driven. Uh, yeah. You know, hey, if my tequila goes up in price, I'm angry. <laughs> well, they're right. There. Yeah. Well, well, but it's not, not just tequila. If you're, if you're, I mean, Mexico is, I believe it's it's the largest agricultural importer, you know, to the U.S. So, I mean, you're going to affect food prices, and, and that see, that's the reality. When when you start talking about putting in twenty percent tariffs and things like that, that that cost gets passed on to the consumers. That that's that's the reality of this. And if the argument is, well, maybe we're going to increase the costs so much that it's going to encourage people to then, like, you know, produce more stuff in the U.S., that that still means the cost of producing goods and services in the U.S. is going to go up, and ultimately the consumers are going to pay. You also have to think about the flip side of this. If we start imposing 20% tariffs on stuff coming into the country, what do you think other countries are going to do on the stuff that we export? Now, again, there's a, there's a what, about a $30 million billion dollar, you know, trade deficit based on the numbers I'm looking at. But still, you know, we're exporting 260, 270 billion dollars worth of good worth of stuff to Mexico. You think Mexico's not going to retaliate by doing the same thing? And if there's less demand overseas or in Mexico in this particular case for U.S. goods, don't you think that that might affect jobs in the U.S.? 414-799-1620. Dell in West Dallas. Dell, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Uh, good morning. Um, yeah, my uh, two cents about this is, I mean, obviously if it's just 20%, at least it's not 40% like he had campaigned about. But the 20% really is only going to hurt us on goods that are solely made in Mexico. 
you know, if there's a 20% tariff on a Ram truck, right. well, at least I could go buy, you know, um, some other truck that's actually made here in the U.S. Right. Right. Um, but, of course, see, the other thing I always wonder, though, I, I don't know what really made in the U.S. means anymore because my guess is that for a lot of the cars that are manufactured overseas, uh, or in Mexico, for example, my guess is some of those parts were made in the U.S. and then shipped to Mexico yeah. to be put. So that, that whenever I hear this made in America thing, do you mean it made, is it assembled in America? Is it American parts? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you look at where, like, a lot of the auto parts are made. Even if the car is assembled somewhere else, how, how does putting a tariff on a Ram truck that has parts that are made in America but is assembled in Mexico, does that, does that really help American businesses, if you know what I mean? No, I, 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 wouldn't, I think there's maybe better ways to go about this than a 20% tariff, other than the fact that, you know, I don't think there's a lot of agreement on that this wall is a good idea anyway. Right, well, exactly, right, thanks, I mean, exactly, and that, that kind of comes back to that. But, but this is, see, this is one of the things where, I mean, Donald Trump differs from your traditional Republican conservative philosophies, which are the idea of, of free trade. Now, I understand that there's things like things that China does with regard to currency manipulation and stuff like that. that you can make argue, you can make an argument gives them an unfair advantage. But at the same time, you know, we, we make a lot of stuff here and we send a lot of stuff out of this country. And I just I really wonder when you start talking about things like this and saying, okay, we're going to propose this retaliatory sort of thing. What is that really going to do? You know, big picture. Does it help American workers that it is now will become harder for us to sell goods overseas? Um, Steve in New Berlin. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Yeah, um, I agree with the previous callers and with your assessment as well. I think it's just a terrible idea, um, not well thought through. I think, um, as you discussed, it's inflationary as can be. That cost gets passed along to, along to the consumer, um, and the seller here suffers. In the case of the last caller, the Dodge Ram, and I'll just move to a different truck. Well, then that, that doesn't help the issuers of the, or the sellers of the Dodge, the Dodge vehicles, right. so that's business hurtful. And one element of this that no one has talked about, if in fact longer run, it's an incentive, as uh, President Trump uh, suggests, to, to bring um, manufacturing and assembly back to the United States. Well, the biggest cost, the biggest cost savings, my understanding, to, for American industry is labor. Right. And uh, Mexico is probably not the best example of this, but for example, you get something... Uh, um, made in Vietnam, and you pay a worker $5 a day, that's a lot of money for them. But here, the labor cost to make the same goods and services, 20 times that. Right. And you're going to pass that cost on bringing that back. So all these things sound great from a campaign standpoint when viewed from a treetop level, but you dig down into the weeds a little bit, and, and some of these arguments are so flawed, they're just... It just don't make any sense. Well, I, you know, I always label it as sort of like the Walmart thing. Everybody says they hate Walmart. I mean, everybody, I, I, we hate Walmart. You know, they, they bring in all this stuff from overseas. But yet every Black Friday, people are lined up because they want the $39 Blu-ray disc player. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, okay, well, exactly, you, yeah. you can't have it both ways. Now, thanks for that. That's it. You mean you, you, you can't have it both ways. And you are exactly right. I mean, the effect of... The effect of putting in punitive tariffs, like a 20% tariff, will be to raise the cost of goods and services. That's number one. So you've got that inflationary effect. Do people really want to pay 20% more for whatever the product is, the car, the, the bananas, whatever the product is? Do you want to pay 20% more? And if 
On the other hand, the other countries start retaliating. What's that going to do to the American jobs that are based on selling stuff overseas? In any event, Trump's people started walking back a little bit from this later on in the afternoon and evening after they started getting a lot of blowback, not just from the left, but actually from from a lot of people on the right who were saying, do we really want to start a trade war where this goes? Don't know. That's big story number one. Big story number two is coming up a school aide who was fired and charged criminally, is speaking. We'll talk about that. Stick around. 855, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 857, Jeff Wagner. Big thing number two. I've got a link to this story up on our website, WTMJ.com. We, we have, as we do every day, Jeff Wagner's three big things. And number two, a fired Milwaukee public school teacher's aide explains why he slammed a student to the ground. I've got a link to this story if you want to watch the video during the break. It's a WISN uh, 12, Channel 12 news report. What happened, and it's also got a link to the original video. This happened at Bayview um, High School, April 20th. And it's you may remember it at the time. It got all sorts of news play. It's about a 15-second cell phone video taken from a kid in the school that shows this 39-year-old teacher's aide, you know, grabbing a 14-year-old student and, and holding, slamming him and holding him down on the floor. Um, you know, MPS, of course, immediately decides that they are going to side with the student. They issued a statement saying MPS finds this incident deeply disturbing. As soon as the school administration was notified of the incident, the Milwaukee Police Department was contacted and the staff member was removed from the classroom. We are cooperating with MPD. Ultimately, the 39-year-old teacher's aide involved in this was charged. He subsequently, I believe, that the it was originally a felony charge. It was reduced to a misdemeanor. He's no longer at the school. He is offering his version of the events in this interview that he did with Channel 12. And it's a very interesting story that I think should give a lot of people, well, reason to pause and wonder whether justice was done. We talk about this next, but during the break, if you want to watch the video, again, if you go to 620WTMJ.com, Wagner's Three Big Things, got a link to the story. It's 859, Jeff Wagner, 620WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are right in the middle of our three big things that we start every show off with. And by the way, we, we always post these on our website, WTMJ.com, with links to the stories and where they come from. In addition, I always have to remind people, because we still get questions, are, are you podcasting? Yes, the programs are now podcast, and you can sign up for downloads. You can go to WTMJ.com, the Jeff Wagner Show page, and check those all out. But big story number two, this, this actually, it goes back to last April, and it got a lot of attention. There was a teacher's aide, 39-year-old man, who was the subject of a 17-second video, one of the cell phone videos taken by a kid at Bayview High School that shows the guy slamming this 14-year-old kid to, to the ground. And, of course, MPS was all outraged about this. The man was fired and ultimately ended up being charged criminally. I think he ultimately pled guilty to a misdemeanor. But, but he's now speaking out about this. And Channel 12 had a very, very interesting interview with him, and I've got a link to it. And, and here's, here's what the guy says. He says, look, I, I'd been a bus driver. I mean, I, I'd been working with kids for years and years. What happened is... A couple of the kids at this school did not like me, 
And what they tried to do is they tried to set me up. He said the 14-year-old in question, extensive criminal record, including breaking into a car dealership. Um, apparently, according to the, the guy, he says, you know, the kid was um, just got out of jail for strong-armed robbery. So he says, okay, this, this is this kid is a bad actor, and he and his buddy didn't they were trying to set me up and they were trying to get rid of me so it all starts he said when the kid spits on me and he says he called for security to come help but he's told that no security can't help you they're away at lunch <laughs> they're they're away at lunch so you've got this this 14 year old kid who's a bad actor and probably shouldn't be in the high school to begin with um he he spits on the guy and gets involved in this sort of assaultive thing, and at least according to him, his story is that there's no security around to help him. So he says, this is what he says on Channel 12, he says, well, what are you supposed to do? Put your back against the wall when you have somebody trying to do harm, and especially somebody who just got out of jail for doing strong-armed robbery? Um, so the guy says, yeah, I, yes, I, I grabbed him, and I, I put him down on the ground. He said, but the kid should have never been in a regular high school. He said, you know, um, he's concerned about his safety. He was concerned about the safety of other teachers. He says, you're not going to leave me in harm's way or anybody else. That's why I fear so much for uh, female teachers. And ultimately, he says, hey, I thought about suing MPS to try to get my job back, but I've decided I, I want to you know, move on. He said he'd been a bus driver for years, mentored at-risk kids, but now he wants to focus on a different career. But his his story is, what you have is, in this case, he said, I'm a teacher's aide. I was left hung out to dry by the school system. You had this 14-year-old kid that didn't like me, that, you know, had a criminal record, who decided, hey, they're going to bait me into trying to do this. Then they're going to sit there with the cell phone camera, and I'm going to be portrayed as the bad guy. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Toll-Free Talk Line. Now, I appreciate that, you know, if you're a 39-year-old teacher's aide or you're a teacher in a in a school setting, whether it's MPS or otherwise, that you, you need to be able to sort of rise above things and getting into physical altercations with students is always a bad idea. At the same time, at the same time, does this guy have a point? I mean, is it, is it in fact possible that you have a dangerous 14-year-old who, together with his buddies, decide that they don't like somebody and then they're going to try to set them up? And is it possible that maybe, maybe there was another side to this story? Do you buy what the now former teacher's aide is selling? 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. And I guess if you've ever worked in, in a school system, I mean, is this, is this a reasonable explanation that, you know, I had these kids that were trying to set me up, they were trying to do violence, and yes, they baited me into this, and I guess I should have been... I should have been able to stand back. But the man's story is you've got a kid that's spitting on him and that security isn't around to help. Now, that's that's his story. So he said, yeah, I grabbed the kid and I put him down on the ground. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. Is that plausible? Is it possible? And if so, does it perhaps provide some form of justification or excuse 
for the, the behavior. And is this reflective of perhaps the larger issue that the men and women who teach in schools nowadays, particularly schools where you have, I don't know, some young people who really probably don't belong in mainstream schools, but perhaps belong well behind bars. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jim in West Dallas. Jim, you're first. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, to be baited by kids is, is, is basically a cop-out to me. Okay. Um, I, I had the same thing happen to me where kids tried to bait me. I, I was once a teacher's aide. Actually, I was a paraprofessional. And um, I, they tried to bait me like that. What you do... You you call security. If security ain't around, then you leave that you leave that situation. You can't let no kids bait you. You're there. You're the adult. You should be stronger than them anyway. And that's my opinion of it. So, well, so the guy said. Now the guy's story is that the, the kid was spitting on him. He called security, and security, like you say, just wasn't around. Um, you think he just he just has to walk away? He has to ignore he has that. To walk away. That, that's what I'm saying. They did that to me too. I was spitted on. I even was kicked. Wow. <laughs> so I know you can walk away. So you have to be the stronger person. You're the adult. You can't let kids bait you. If a kid can bait an adult, then what's the adult doing there then? Well, I guess, I mean, there, there's, you're right, there, there's baiting and then there's baiting. So um, I don't know. How, I, I guess, see, part of the thing is when I hear when I hear kids spitting on people and all, it's just, it, it, I guess it's amazing to me. When I was 14 years old, it wouldn't have occurred to me to spit on a teacher's aide or a teacher. It just, that would, I agree that, with you. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. No, thank you. Th- happened to me. They spit on me. I was giving kicks. And I and I knew something. I said to myself, "No, I can't do this. I have to back down. Let me get out of there." And wasn't no security around for me neither. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I immediately left the room, went to the office, and then security came. They took the young man away. Yeah. No, thanks. And again, I, and that's and that's see, and that's that's why I'm actually curious about this conversation because is it a justification? Is it an excuse? Is there ever a circumstance where it is appropriate to lay hands on a kid? Even including a kid, at least based on this description, doesn't sound like to me he should have been in the school in the first place. Carrie in West Bend. Carrie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hello. Hi. What do you think? I, I did work in the school system, and working in the kitchen, um, there was a, two girls in the food line, and one had spilled something on the other person's shoe, and one had came back and said, you're going to lift this off my shoe. And the other girl just kind of in shock, like, what? What did he do? You know, it was an accident. And the other girl looked like she was ready to come at the other one, and I just stood in between them. Right. Uh, you have no right to touch another student, because then you're at fault. Right, you, well, and that's precisely and that's precisely what happened in this particular case. The guy, I, it, it's pretty clear, I mean, he got angry. He, you know, he, he was spit on, and that was... And then he that's how he reacted when he didn't get any help from anywhere else. But you're just saying that you gotta walk away in that situation. You gotta you gotta take it from the kids. And it does happen in the schools a lot and I see it uh, as you see all the time. But you have no recourse. You cannot touch them, you cannot you get out of the the way. You hmm. let somebody else handle it or they will come back at you. Yeah. And that girl also threatened and said, I know who you are, I will get you <laughs> how, And I just laughed like Okay, I'm a fat woman. Bring it. You know. <laughs> how, how how how? I'm just curious. How old was the kid? The, how, the how old? kid was a junior in high school. In okay. School. I, okay, so let, let's say that's 16 or 17. Again, like I was saying with the previous caller, it's, it's such an alien world to me. I cannot imagine at the age of 15 or 16 or 17 or 14 spitting on or threatening you know somebody in a lunch you know, an adult in a lunch line. It's just. You just wonder what the mindset of people are nowadays to do something like that. I think a lot of parents aren't 
believing their kids are actually able to do this, and so they take the side of the child. Because when I was younger and a teacher slapped my hands with a ruler, my mom went, she did something to provoke it. Go ahead. Yeah, you know? <laughs> were, were, were you a product of parochial schools or public schools? Uh, it was uh, Catholic school. Got it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right with, with the good sisters, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, th- thanks to no, but when I hear rulers and stuff, the good sisters and the rulers, stop that. No public displays of affection. Whack. Understood. Um, big thing number three, union membership continues to decline. We discuss next. 918, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> 921, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We start out every program with three big things, stories that I think you need to know about so you can Discuss them at the coffee closet or at the lunch table. Uh, Our third big story of the day, union membership. The numbers are now in. Union membership in Wisconsin. Now, this includes public and private union membership. Is down nearly 40% since Act 10 was passed back in 2011. Um, In 2010, before Act 11, there were approximately... 355,000 people in Wisconsin who were union members, public or private. So that's combining. About 355,000. Now, uh, union membership, currently um, 219,000. So if you look at at overall at members of the workforce, uh, about 8.1% of the workforce is unionized. And again, dramatic drop-off. In 2016, last year, the, the number there had been dramatic drops since Act 10. It kind of stabilized in 2016. But if you want to look at it, pre-Act 10 or post-Act 10, union membership down dramatically. 219,000 union members, and again, that's public and private, according to the U.S. Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics. They released that number yesterday. And, of course, there's a lot of people saying, okay, this is dreadful. This is horrible for Wisconsin. It's horrible for workers. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Toll-Free Talk Line. Now, there's no question that, that after Act 10, lots of public sector employees, I, I think, made the decision that There's no reason to belong to a union anymore because the union's ability for collective bargaining has been dramatically restricted. So why bother? I'm not getting anything for my dues. So I think a lot of employees have just simply made the decision, okay, we're going to move on. Then, of course, you have the right to work laws as well. My question is, is this going to be a trend that continues or are we going to see a resurgence in union membership? 414-799-1620, That's the Acunet Mortgage Toll-Free Talk Line. Are unions still relevant in 2017? Or because of Act 10, because of pressures in the private system, because of the way things have just moved on? I mean, is this going to be a permanent thing, or will there be a rebound? Because, I mean, stuff tends to work on a pendulum, you know? Sometimes stuff swings one way, and then, you know, it swings back. Are unions going to be making a comeback? 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, no, I don't see unions unions coming back, but I, I, I think it's 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 a shame that they've gone away, because I think there's a direct relationship between the decline in wages and 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 individuals paying 
more for their benefits uh, mm-hmm. uh, when the unions dis- when the unions were basically destroyed, especially in the state. When you look at the uh, uh, state employees when Act 10 came in, the fact that they were promised uh, uh, merit raises. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, uh, the the uh, state said they didn't have enough money to give merit raises. Right. So the fact is, they're paying more for their benefits, and 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 their and. Uh, and their wages aren't being increased. So the fact is they're losing money working. Well, they might be losing a little bit of ground. Now, at the same time, like the cost of benefits goes up. You know, all of us are paying more for our health insurance and things like that. I mean, the costs are going up. Let me let me talk about the larger point, though, with you, Vincent. The You know, you, you talk about, you know, unions go away, so some of the higher-paying jobs go away. Why do you think, why do you think that is? Is it just... I mean, is it because there's evil employers, or is it just a, a reaction? We we want the cheap DVD player, DVR players. That I was talking about the Blu-ray disc players, you know, from Walmart. So we we want to pay thirty nine dollars. So we we want to have them imported from Vietnam or wherever, as opposed to as consumers wanting to pay more for American made products. Well, I, I think I think that that that's a component of of the problem. The fact is, is that yeah, that that I think employers do want to want to keep 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 their their balances high, and 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 the fact is, we want to keep our products cheap. So 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 what happens is these things collide. Yeah. And so 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 the fact is, is that that's that's why those companies are either automating. And I think that's the worst thing. People think that that the you know the uh, the problem is that uh, uh, legal aliens and and other individuals are coming here taking their jobs. No. Automation is more devastating to the American worker than any, than than the than a person coming here trying to take your job. Yeah, you know that's that's an interesting. Whenever I whenever I see these protests, the fast food workers that want the fifteen bucks an hour, you make the point about automation. The the, the you know if you ever had that passed, you know fifteen dollars to the fast food workers, you would have, in my opinion, you know, such a loss of jobs because it, it makes sense to have people there at eight bucks an hour or nine bucks an hour. If you have to pay people fifteen dollars an hour, you're going to see the employers automate. Then it, it, that's what it's it's going to be. You know you're you're just going to be pushing buttons on a kiosk to order your stuff at the drive-through window. You're not going to be talking to a person anymore. That's right. But the but the but the problem is is that products continue to rise. The fact that we're paying more and getting less. When you look at the issue of shrinkage, the fact is when you look at most products, either you're paying more for it or you're getting less. And so the fact is is that this is going to be an issue as far as the American work is concerned because we're not going to be stuck in – it's not possible for the American worker to be stuck at a, at a lower wage like we have in, in other countries like Mexico. So because uh, the, the, uh, the facts that our cost for products is too high. Yeah, no, it, well, it's going to be interesting to see where, where that, that collision comes in. My take on this, I, I think – I think you will see somewhat of a rebound in union membership, certainly not to the levels it was in the in the 1970s, for example. Um, but but at the same time, unions need to adapt. Unions need to figure out what is important to the workers and concentrate on it. I think in many respects, you know, one of the things that led to the decline in unions is you had a lot of the union bosses that just, well, I don't know, they, they thought – they thought that they were impervious. They thought that there's, okay, it's always going to continue to be this way, and just sort of lost touch, I think, with American consumers, and to an extent lost track and lost touch with some of their workers, which is why so many people, I think, have made the decision that they're going to pull out. Um, And that's where it stands in Wisconsin. 
935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Quick reminder, um, 1105, we're joined by Don Smiley from Summerfest to talk about all the new developments. 1135, the weekend review with Susie Falk and Tracy Johnson. We look at national and local stories. Right now, I, one of the things, when you do what I do for a living, is you, you have to be really careful about the, the so-called fake news because there's so much stuff out there that you, you want to, you, you hear some of these things and you think that can't be real. And, and, and you have to be careful because sometimes it, it isn't real. But this next story, well, it, it, I, I am confident that it is, in fact, real. Now, yesterday we were talking about this idiotic resolution that the Milwaukee County Board considered um, earlier this week a, a committee of the of the county board, and they're going to actually be voting on next Thursday. It's this idiotic resolution, and, and I read it a couple of days ago. I won't take that seven minutes of your life away again. But essentially, it's this liberal screed put together by one of the extreme left-wing supervisors, this Marina Dmitrievic, who, former county board chairperson and ran for state representative, lost. And so th- it's this, this rambling screed denouncing Donald Trump and talking about how now, we're going to do this in Milwaukee County. We're going to do that in Milwaukee County. And, you know, we're going to at 80 to 90 percent of the stuff is beyond the control of the county board. But this is just really a big sloppy wet kiss to liberal special interest groups. And they debated this. I mean, at I'm a taxpayer in Milwaukee County. They debated this stupid thing, you know, in a committee for the better part of a couple hours. We paid to have this happen. And they're going to debate it again next Thursday at the county board. A, a resolution that, like I say, is nothing but this political manifesto that sounds like something if you were in college back in 1968 and you got together and you took a couple mushrooms and smoked a bunch of pot, this would be, you know, kind of putting together, hey, man, you know, we want to try to, this is what we want to see the world as. Okay, but it's taxpayer dollars that are doing this. My takeaway of the thing was that if you have any, if you wonder whether or not the Milwaukee County Board should be eliminated once and for all, forget the downsizing, forget cutting the pay to part-time. If you have enough time to sit around and debate a resolution like this for minutes or hours, it is God's way of telling you that you are unnecessary. So it's, you know, exhibit A as to why you should do away with the Milwaukee County Board if they've got time to do this. Well, when it comes to the UW system, you will have story after story after story talking about how awful the Republicans in the legislature have been because they're, they're cutting back the funding or, or my God, we, we've frozen tuition for in-state students. How awful is that? You know, after years and years and years of pretty much, you know, huge increases. And of course, the argument is, oh, we're going to lose all these quality faculty members. We, we just don't have enough money. Well, in the same vein, And if you wonder, you know, whether or not the Milwaukee County Board needs to exist, if they've got time to debate these idiotic manifestos, here's a story. And again, a friend of mine sent it to me. Um, It's out of Madison. I I thought I was concerned that this was fake news, but I, I don't think so. Here's here's the story as it's reported by one of these Madison websites. UW administrator looks to drop the term safe spaces. Right. Um, safe spaces is, of course, this is the thing in campuses nowadays. We want to set up safe spaces for people to go. If you feel threatened, they're going to have a conservative speaker. You might feel threatened. We're going to set up a safe space. Oh, my goodness gracious, Donald Trump got elected president. People are just having trouble dealing with this. We have to set up a safe space for the snowflakes. Apparently, there has been an ongoing debate at Madison, not about setting up safe spaces, 
but about whether you can call the safe spaces safe spaces. Hand in the air, I do not make this stuff up. Here's the story. University of Wisconsin Vice Chancellor for Financial Affairs, Lawrence Heller, who arrived in Madison from Berkeley, California in June. Of course he did. <laughs> you know, of, of, of course he did. Like, like I say, if you had a, mar- a map of marbles of the U.S. and you shook it, every loose marble would roll to you know California with a couple stopping in Madison. In this case, you've apparently got a loose marble that rolled to California and now has rolled back to Madison. All right. University of Wisconsin Vice Chancellor for Financial Affairs, Lauren Teller, who arrived in Madison from Berkeley, California in June, has asked the engagement, inclusion, and Diversity Council attached to his office. So, okay, so you got the Office of Financial Affairs, and they apparently have something called the Engagement, Inclusion, and Diversity Council as part of this office to find an alternative to the term safe spaces, apparently because the term makes some white people feel unwelcome. Quote, we've received feedback from some majority employees, that would be white, we've received feedback from some majority employees that they interpret the term safe spaces to imply that an event or resource is not intended for them. Such a misunderstanding could sidetrack our efforts, Heller said in a statement emailed to Madison 365, which is the website. According to public available meeting agendas, the Engagement, Inclusion, and Diversity Council has discussed alternative language for the term safe spaces at its last three meetings. Okay. <laughs> You've got this is an agenda item at three meetings to discuss whether or not safe spaces as a term should continue to be used. The term safe spaces, apparently they have now decided it is going to be replaced with the term sifting and winnowing. I don't even know what that means. I, I just I have I don't even know what that means. A phrase that comes from an eighteen ninety four Board of Regents report on academic freedom, Heller said, Whatever may be the limitations which trammel inquiry elsewhere, huh, we believe that the great state of the University of Wisconsin should ever encourage that continual and fearless sifting and winnowing by which alone the truth can be found. The report reads in part. You just you just don't know where to start. So whenever you hear UW pleading poverty, remember, they apparently have a committee that has had multiple meetings discussing whether or not the term safe spaces needs to be changed because, well, some majority employees, that would be white employees, might take offense. If you wonder again whether or not there is fat in the UW budget and whether or not there are people that maybe before we start raising the tuition of students, maybe there's some jobs that could be cut. My message would be if you've got enough time to sit around at multiple meetings and discuss the term safe spaces, well, okay, maybe you've got too much time on your hands. It's 942. Should an employer be able to ask you how much money you made at your last job? Stick around. That's coming up next. 945, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, coming up in 20 minutes. The aging hippie mayor of Madison tells Donald Trump to stick it. We'll discuss as part of our Dealer's Choice segment. I I was thinking back on this. In my adult life, I've had three jobs. Out of law school, I got hired for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, got involved in politics, and and went into private practice of law, and then I've worked here. 
I don't think I was ever asked my salary history. I mean, when I when I got out of law school, I hadn't worked, you know, in, in the practice of law, so I don't. They didn't ask me how much money I made then. I, I think when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office and went into private practice, as I recall, nobody asked me how much money I had made. They said this is what we could pay you, and said fine. And the same thing here. When I when I started here, it was like, okay, this is how much we can start you off at. You know, you you can decide. So I've never been asked salary history in my life, but I know that is a common thing. Um, It is not unusual when you apply for a job. You know, one of the things that they ask people to do is list where they worked and list the salary history for that. Now, that has become controversial because some people say that 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 hurts women. The, The idea it being if historically women have made less than men for doing the same job. This is the way the argument goes. What happens is you you have, for example, a woman that applies for a a job, and they look at her salary history, and they say, okay, we we wanna hire this woman, but let's say she's making $10 an hour for the sake of argument. And they say, okay, well, we we see that she's making $10 an hour. I tell you what, we're we're gonna pay her 11. We wanna get, we wanna give her a raise. So hey, you know, you're gonna get a 10% raise, we're gonna bring you over at $11 an hour. So th- that's great. And she thinks, hey, that that's great. Well, meanwhile, maybe you've got a guy that's interviewing for a similar sort of position, and they look at his salary, and it turns out he's making $12 an hour, so they say, okay, we're gonna pay you 13. That That's the argument, that if employers know how much money you've made and what your salary history is, they can adjust the offers accordingly. And the argument is this continues to be one of these glass ceilings and the effect is women are always gonna be behind for salaries. Now I bring this up because Philadelphia has just become the first US city to ban employers from requesting salary history. So if you are an employer in Philadelphia, and Comcast, by the way, is in Philadelphia, under the law, under the ordinance, you are not allowed to ask prospective applicants about how much money they made in their previous job or how much money they made in the job before that or before that. This is the start of a growing trend. Massachusetts passed a state law to this effect, and other other communities are considering this. Okay, 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. Should an employer... As part of its background and as part of, again, the hiring process, be able to ask an empl- a potential employee how much money they're making at their current job and how much money they've made in previous jobs. And, and like I say, that's I, I have to imagine that a lot of times that might influence you know how much an employer is going to offer you. For example, you know you've got a job range and you're thinking, okay, we can pay somebody, we, we can pay somebody. You know, between sixty and sixty-five thousand dollars a year for this particular job. Well, okay, where you decide how much they're going to pay him or her might depend on. Gee, if the person's already making sixty and we want them, we're probably going to have to offer them sixty-five. If the person we want is making fifty, we can offer them, you know, sixty, and they're going to be thrilled. Should the employer be able to find out this information? Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, good morning. Hi, good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Hey, uh... I was in that situation. I worked for a Fortune 500 company and uh, got downsized. So I was making a, a bigger salary right. and then tried looking for something locally here. And after they found out how much I was making, their their own uh, prejudgment was, uh, 
you're not going to be happy here what we can offer you. So they never even made an offer. Oh, so in your and case, at your that, case, it wasn't point, it, right. It wasn't. Gee, we're going to try to undercut him. It was he's not going to stay with us. You know, we saw how much money he was making before. He's not going to be interested in this job. We're not even going to go after him because even if we hire him, he's going to be looking for something better the day he walks in the door. Absolutely, and uh, that kind of uh, hurt me because uh, at that time it was like uh, really bad times of the year. Uh, right. Back in the nineties or whatever. Right. But, okay, well, let whatever. me. But l- let me ask you the flip side of that, though, Mike. It, l- let's assume. Right. Let us assume that that's what the employer was thinking. He's not going to be happy here. You know, he he was making a hundred whatever. He's making a hundred thousand. You know, we're we're only able to pay him sixty thousand. He's going to be constantly looking for a a better, higher paying job. If they had decided that, would that have been true? I mean, if you had taken that job again for sixty after making a hundred, in my example, would you have been? I, would you have been constantly looking to find a different job that paid more? Oh, probably not. I'd just have okay. to check out the situation. I I didn't really need that much money or whatever. I'm just right. saying I would probably uh, stay with them if they're nice people. If they weren't, then I'd obviously be looking. Okay, good enough. I mean, I, I just ask because, I mean, I, I, I mean, in, in your scenario, that, that would be the assumption. The assumption is we, we hire him for you know, $40,000 less than he was making. Yeah, he's going to take the job, but we're going to have to fill this six months later because he's going to be constantly looking for something better. And I just, that's why I was curious as to whether, you know, it's it's valid or or not. Dave in West Dallas. Dave, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. What do you think? I think the IRS and my wife are the only ones that need to know how much I've been making and how much I've made in the past. And you're not even sure about your wife, huh? <laughs> well, my wife is definitely in on what I'm making. She <laughs> right. should be. Um, but I don't think it's uh, an employer's business, what anybody was making. And usually, uh, you know, the ads that I've seen recently, I haven't been job hunting lately, but I, you know, I have in the past. And most of the time, they print what they're going to, what the salary is going to be or what the hourly rate is going to be. So people that are applying already know what they're applying for. And I think it kind of, you know, it gets rid of this issue. It's not even an issue. When mm-hmm. the people are applying for it, they know what they're in for. Um, so you just think it's kind of completely irrelevant in most of the jobs? I, I really do. I just, I don't think it's any of their business. If, if an employer wants somebody, you're going to pay them for their skills, their ability, their, and, and what they're going to be able to put out for the company or organization. Do you think there's any valid reason for an employer to ask that information? I really don't. Okay. I don't think it's in their business, and I don't think they should. Um, thanks to call, 414-799-1620. Well, I mean, y- yes and no. I, I sit there, I mean, I, I you know, in, in some, like in some jobs, that that's correct, okay? This is this is what the position pays. It pays $12.32 an hour or, or whatever, and that, that's what we start people off at. There are other jobs, though, where the, the job process is a negotiation, where the, the the salary is in a range, and I'm thinking of a lot of like semi-professional type of jobs. The the, the it's a range. You know, we, we can pay somebody sixty to seventy thousand dollars, but if we're going to you know try to figure out where we are on that list, we need to know what people you know what people made. You know, what are you making now? So I mean, I can see a, some validity there. Now, I guess the interesting thing is. If the employer, the prospective hirer, says, all right, how, how much are you making? And you say, I don't want to disclose that, or I'm not going to give the other people permission to tell you that, you know, where does that leave you? Let's talk to um, Michael in Milwaukee. Michael, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, good morning. Hi. Um, so, yeah, I guess my point would be I, 
it's it's a relationship between an employer and a and the employee, and I understand that the employer has a business to run, and they need to have a bottom line, and they need to watch that with their salary. Right. I think it's reasonable to ask that, but I also think in return, I think it should be expected to tell the employee how much the last person in that place made ah. in their position, and so it's a two turnabout is fair play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> turnabout is fair play, huh? Yep. Yeah, that, exactly. Um, and it, it's thanks for. I mean, see, I can I, I can just imagine. I can just imagine the the response if you go to if you go to HR and you say, "Okay, I'll use my own example. All right, I, I'm doing the eight thirty to twelve shift. I know how much money I make. Hey, I, I want to know. Tell me how much Sykes was being paid for doing the same shift. I I can just imagine what the response to that would have been. Jeff, um, none of your business, at least not from us. Clint in Bayview. Clint, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. What do you think about this? Is it an employer's right? Does an employer have a right to know how much you made at your last job? I really don't. Um, you know, and and I know that this is brought up with the glass ceiling issue, but I really see it as as a worker's issue. I think regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, um, if if the employer. Uh, knows how much you made previously, that puts the worker at an extreme disadvantage when they're trying to negotiate yes. their salary for the positions that are in a range. Yes. Um, and I just think, especially for younger people who are just entering the workforce, you know, just getting their career started, um, negotiating your salary, you know, telling your potential future boss what you believe you're worth, I mean, that's extremely empowering. Uh, you know, to say, listen, this is my education, this is my experience, and this is how much I believe I'm worth. Um, you know, it's just a very empowering thing. So if the employer knows what the person was making previously, and that, you know, that person's already at a disadvantage then, um, you know, to prove their worth. No, I think that's a very interesting point. I have to tell you, I'm fascinated by the calls, because every call we had an opportunity to take were people who supported in general, you know, we're, we're sort of anti-big government type of folks. Every every person who called up supported an ordinance which would limit the ability of employers to ask this information. Interesting. Nine fifty six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. As for me, I I don't I don't support an ordinance to this effect. I mean, I don't think it ought to be a law, but I do think. Um, I think employees should have the right, if they don't feel comfortable to providing that information, I, I think employees or prospective employees should have the right to just sort of leave that blank. Now, whether that kills their job prospects or not is a different story. 956, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So, Jane, do you like the sweater vest look that I've got going on here, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, the, the reason I bring this up is because during the, the break, I was I was going around and I'm wearing a a sweater vest today, and um, I'm going through the hall, and whenever I wear this, it, it's, especially folks who've been here, it, it, they now call me Mr. Rogers. Um, <laughs> it, but but it actually, but it's actually the evil Mr. Rogers, because, it, and, and if you want to see it, we're going to be Facebook live streaming during our week in review, but it, it goes back a couple years, because a few years back, you know, Talkers Magazine, which is one that covers this industry, um, proving that you can fool some of the people some of the time. Um, it was the first year that they named me one of the 100 most influential talk show hosts in America. And one of these liberal websites, heads exploding. The, the, the thing is, Wagner, the most dangerous propagandist on Milwaukee radio. And, and the thing was because, you know, all these other hosts, that they yell and they scream, 
but Wagner, he's real. He's the evil Mister Rogers. He 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 makes it sound. You're laughing. That, that was it. It's the evil Mister Rogers. He sounds like he's smart. He sounds like he's reasonable. And and you know, in spite of yourself, you find yourself agreeing with him. And then you realize, oh my God, he sucks you in. It's the evil Mister Rogers. So that goes. That goes. Sykes was always just fascinated. So I'm walking through the hall. Oh, you got the Mister Rogers look going on. So we're we're rocking the we're rocking the evil Mister Rogers look here. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's, 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 it was that that was it. And you know something? I wear that as a badge of honor. <laughs> I just I absolutely have, and I think of that every time I put on one of. I, and actually, I just it was kind of like, oh, it's a little bit chilly today, and all right, we'll we'll wear that. So if you want to see the evil Mister Rogers at work, we are going to be live streaming our uh, weekend review at eleven thirty-five today. All right, this is the segment of the program that that we call Dealer's Choice. It's we do this this time every day. It's what I think is one of the more talkable topics of of the day and and this we we discussed this briefly yesterday in sort of a different context donald trump as part of his executive orders have gone after sanctuary cities now the the term sanctuary city is sort of up in the air because different places define it differently some places say you bet we're sanctuary cities other places say, well, um, you know, we're, we're not technically a sanctuary city, but, you know, we're not going to cooperate with federal law enforcement. What it essentially means is a, a city that takes the position that they will, the city, um, will not allow local law enforcement to aid in immigration enforcement. So the idea would be if somebody comes forward— and the local law enforcement figures out that this person is in the country illegally. They are not supposed to, and they are not permitted, to notify federal authorities of the fact that we have somebody who's here illegally. Now, different cities approach this differently. Some cities say, well, if somebody comes forward and they are the victim of a crime or they're a witness or we just make a routine traffic stop, we're not going to notify immigration. But if we find out that they're if the person has committed a crime and, you know, we're, we're holding them, we'll notify the federal government. Other cities say, no, under no circumstances are we going to notify the federal government. We are not going to cooperate at all. So it varies a little bit depending on, depending on what jurisdiction. Well, after Donald Trump has signed an executive order, and the executive order now directs the federal government to go about figuring out how to – I guess, punish and try to force compliance from these cities that refuse to follow federal law. The example I've always given with this is every state has a 21-year-old drinking age. Well, there's there's not a federal law that says you have to have a 21-year-old drinking age, but the federal government says if your drinking age is not 21, you are not eligible for federal highway funds, and states get you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in federal highway funds, and they can't afford to lose that dough. So it's it's sort of legal extortion, and I don't mean extortion in a bad way necessarily, but it's that that pocketbook thing. Okay, I'm going to give you, if you want the money, you've got to do what I want you to do. So that's, you know, and there's other examples of that. So what Trump is looking at doing is saying, okay, if we've got these cities that are not going to comply with federal law and are not going to cooperate with us as we try to identify 
people who are in this country illegally, potentially for deportation, we're going to cut off their dough. All right. If if you don't want to follow federal law, you know, go with God. But and you don't want to cooperate with the the federal officials. Fine. But there are going to be consequences. Well, into this wades wades the aging uber lefty mayor of Madison, Paul Soglin. You know, going back to the old hippie days in the '60s. Now Soglin's the mayor has a big press conference, and, and Madison, Madison is one of these cities that says, "Well, we we don't cooperate with immigration in most cases, but we're not technically a sanctuary city." Um, but here's what he he says: He has a press conference that says, um, "We are not employees or agents of the federal government, particularly immigration and customs enforcement. We will not use our local police department as a tool to enforce." federal immigration law. So um, in Madison, they will cooperate with federal authorities um, when it's regard to serious crimes. But as a general rule, you know, beyond serious crimes, no. So, you know, you can argue about whether they're technically a sanctuary city or not, but certainly their policy out in Madison is going to put them in the crosshairs, I would think, of some of these different initiatives, saying, hey, if you're not going to cooperate fully with federal law enforcement, including, you know, when you arrest somebody on drunk driving or a traffic offense or whatever, you know, notifying immigration, if you have reason to believe this person is not in the country legally, that they put themselves at risk of losing federal funds. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage toll-free talk line. Okay, Paul Soglin and Madison, together with some other mayors across the country deciding to draw a line in the sand and say, we don't care whether we lose federal funding, we're going to do, we're not going to cooperate with immigration in many different contexts. All right, should there be consequences? Is Trump's position unreasonable when he says, all right, if you're not going to cooperate with us, if you're not going to play ball, be prepared to lose money? Is that unreasonable? For one, And for these mayors who are deciding that they are, not going to change their policies. Is this a very dangerous game of chicken? And how should this all play out? 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage toll-free talk line we discuss next. 1015, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ten eighteen, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, Mayor Paul Soglin out in Madison potentially putting $30 million in federal funding at risk by saying we're, we're not going to change our policies with regard to cooperating with the federal government when it comes to immigration. We don't care what Donald Trump is saying. Let's start with Mike in Richfield. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. Hi, yeah, Mike. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just totally breaking the law. I mean, if, if they're supposed to help out the federal government, which they should be doing, uh, that's what they should be doing. If they're not going to follow the rules, cut off every drop of my money <laughs> so they don't get free insurance and free health care and free schooling. I mean, enough's enough. That's that's what this whole 
electoral situation was about. For well, 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 right, and I guess, I mean, what what laws, you know, what, what do you get to pick and choose and cooperate on? Well, okay, if we arrest somebody for a serious crime, we'll notify authorities. And again, every city does it just a little bit differently. But, you know, if we pick somebody up for drunk driving or whatever, well, we, we're not going to tell the customs people, you know, we're not going to ask citizenship. What's, what's that all about? I mean, you've got this national policy. I thought law enforcement was supposed to cooperate at all these various levels. That's that's what I was told that was going to be happening too. Back, I mean, going back as far as nine eleven, when they said all of these agencies should be working together yep. for multiple reasons, and you you said about the small stuff, that kind of goes back to that broken windows thing. Right. You start out with the small stuff, stuff escalates and it gets out of control. It doesn't. It doesn't, frankly, matter what they do wrong. If they're here illegally, they need to go or whatever process needs to happen. Well, well right. Or at the very least, no. Thanks to call. At, at the very least notify immigration and let them make that decision. See, that that's the, the, the key to this type of thing. But this idea, okay, we've arrested somebody for drunk driving. Um, we know that they're not a citizen, but we're not going to notify federal law enforcement a, about this, um, and we're not going to detain them to give them an opportunity to get a warrant. Well, okay, all right, fine. Then how does that play out? when the person who's in this country illegally um, then goes out, gets drunk again, and kills somebody. I mean, that's, I mean, you've had these stories that are playing out all across the country. The most notable one recently in San Francisco, where you have the guy who's in this country illegally, should have been deported. He's turned back loose by the local court system onto the streets, and he ends up killing a woman. All right, that's, I, again, I, I just see, I I come from federal law enforcement, and the whole idea was, you know, you want to cooperate at different levels. But you have some of these lefty cities, because it is politically correct at the time now, to decide, okay, we're not going to cooperate with, you know, federal law enforcement when it comes to certain things. Well, okay, fine. If you're going to pick and choose what you want to cooperate with, all right, then don't expect – you know, the federal government to bail you out when it comes to other things. And just like I think it is reasonable. Now, you know, I I think reasonable people can argue about whether or not the drinking age should be 21 or 20 or 19 or 18. But I mean, I think it is reasonable if the federal government has a policy that says, okay, you know, we want it to be 21 and you don't have to make it 21. But if you're going to do that, if you want federal money, you, 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 it better be 21. You can decide. I think it is also reasonable to say, City of Madison, if you want $30 million in federal funds annually, we expect you to cooperate with federal law enforcement officials. And if you don't want it, fine, figure out where you're going to get the $30 million from. Leonard in Glendale. Leonard, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. It's kind of hard. It's, it's getting used to saying that. Um, yeah, that was my point, was there is precedence for this because with the drinking age, they said, you don't have to make it 21, but if you don't make it 21, you're not going to get the money. And and the bottom line is, does that mean now, if I don't like a, a law that you passed in Madison, that I can just ignore it and <laughs> if I have no consequences? No. If I break the law in Madison, you're going to charge me. If right. this person has done something illegally or has been watching your attention that, hey, they're in here illegally, and they're want, especially if they're wanted, by the federal government because they missed their deportation hearing or right. whatever, you need to cooperate. And if if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Then you don't get the federal money. Right. And it may very well be. I mean, thanks. It may very well be that, that immigration officials decide that they're, they're not going to act on a particular thing. You know, you pick somebody up for, I don't know, some you, you, okay, you, you pick somebody up for a minor offense. 
And it turns out when they're booked into the jail, you figure out that this person or you have substantial you have substantial questions about the person's citizenship and legal residency. Okay. Well, all right, it might be that you notify the federal officials, and for whatever reason, federal officials say, okay, we're, we're not concerned with this person at this particular time. We're not going to put a detainer on him. We're not going to investigate him. But at least you let the appropriate official make that determination. This idea that, here, we're going to stand up and you know we're going to collectively raise our middle fingers to the you know government of the United States and the Trump administration and law enforcement because we don't have to do this. Well, all right, yeah, if you decide you don't want to do it, go with God, but be prepared to understand that there's going to be consequences. It's 1026. Jeff Wacker, 620 WTMJ. WTMJ's Gene Miller says there are two seasons in Wisconsin, Packers season and the Packers fan season of discontent. Are we just waiting for the start of the next season now? Read Gene's thoughts at WTMJ.com. He does a very, very good job with his blog. All right. The um, I would think one of the biggest changes in society over, I would say, the last 30 or 40 years— is the fact that cigarette smoking, which used to be commonplace, you, you you look at some of these old sitcoms. I was thinking about this, you know, with Mary Tyler Moore's passing. The the, the old sitcoms, like the Dick Van Dyke Show, that they, they used to be sponsored by cigarette companies, and there were, I mean, the the characters would do ads. Uh, you you watch the old I Love Lucy shows. They're smoking cigarettes. She's pregnant in some of these things, and they're smoking cigarettes. I mean, but that's, that just shows how society has changed. And, you know, we, we saw it back in the, the 60s and early 70s, where then you had the Surgeon General's warnings and, you know, no cigarette advertising on TV anymore and all that type of stuff. And everything ha- has evolved. Now you've got all the no smoking places. And so, you know, you, you walk into a bar or a restaurant and you always see these people huddled outside and it's 10 degrees, you know, having their, their cigarette and things like that. Well, one of the other things that's been going on is it's becoming more and more difficult for people to not only find places to smoke cigarettes, but also to buy cigarettes. Now, a couple, what, a couple years ago, um, two years ago, CVS, which is one of the big nationwide drugstore chains, which used to sell, I say used to, they used to sell cigarettes, and it was it was a huge part of of their business. Well, two years ago, um, CVS made the decision that they were they were no longer going to sell cigarettes, and their justification was, hey, you know, we're in the health business, you know, we're we're trying to expand our prescription drugs and promote all this healthy living, and it's sort of inconsistent for us to be selling cigarettes at the same time, you know, we're trying to brand ourselves around healthy living. So they ended up taking, well, a relatively significant financial hit walking away from this. And again, um, you know, they said that um, after, and they've also done these studies that say that after CVS stopped selling cigarettes, um, in markets where CVS operated, cigarette pack sales fell by an additional 1%. Um, And that's because CVS had this huge share of the business and so because people couldn't buy their cigarettes at CVS, at least some people, that's what the argument is, stopped buying cigarettes. Now, I bring this up because Walgreens, 
which is one of the nation's other big drugstore chains. Walgreens has been under a ton of pressure to follow the CVS lead and stop selling cigarettes in the drugstores. And there was a matter of fact, there was a big shareholder meeting um, that was held yesterday. And that was the number one question. You had all these shareholders who were pushing Walgreens to follow the CVS model and say, we're, we're not going to sell cigarettes at our stores. To which, you know, Walgreens says, well, um, we're, we consider it, but we're not prepared to do that now. And, um, yeah, we offer all the smoking cessation stuff, but for the moment, we continue to plan to sell cigarettes. All right, 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Toll-Free Talk Line. What should Walgreens do? Is it inconsistent for a drugstore, you know, a chain of stores, big nationwide stores that promote health, as they try to do, is it inconsistent for them to sell cigarettes? Should they do what CVS did two years ago and end the sales of cigarettes at Walgreens drugstores? 414-799-1620. And like I say, the company gets to decide to do what it, what it wants to do, but there's a lot of push from the shareholders to get the drugstore out of the tobacco business. 414-799-1620. What should Walgreens do? And if you are a cigarette smoker, I'd be particularly interested in having your hearing your opinion should it be more difficult for you to find a place to buy cigarettes? Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Puff, 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 and if you smoke yourself It's 1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Two years ago, CVS Pharmacies, which is one of the nation's largest chain of drugstores, uh, took, a, took a relatively decent-sized hit to their bottom line because they decided to stop selling cigarettes uh, and tobacco products. And the rationale was, hey, we're, we're in the health business. It is inconsistent for us to be you know, promoting healthy living and all this other stuff and selling tobacco at the same time. Walgreens, one of the nation's other large drugstore chains, has thus far refused to stop selling tobacco. Big shareholders meeting you know, the other day, and they came under a lot of pressure from shareholders saying, why are we selling, continuing to sell tobacco at our drugstores? 414-799-1620 is the number. Jordan in Waukesha. Jordan, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Hey, yeah. So as a former smoker, uh, when CVS stopped selling cigarettes, uh, it was only a block away from my house. There was a block away walk, and it, it just became inconvenient for me to jump into a car and drive out to a Walgreens. So props to CVS for committing to health and wellness. Well, I guess, do you think... I mean, your props to CVS, but at the same time, is, is Walgreens, by making the decision to continue to sell cigarettes, are they just giving, are they giving the consumer what the consumer wants? I mean, if people want to patronize that and cigarettes are still legal, should they be able to go and buy them at a Walgreens? So it's, I guess it's just a big statement thing. Are, are you more committed to making money or are you more committed to the health and wellness? Right. Okay. And, and I would say that they should follow along. Yeah, no, thank, and see, and that's that's what a lot of that's why I find this so interesting because again, they they have the right. Don't, don't misunderstand my question. It, it's a legal product; they have the right to sell it. But the question is: is continuing to sell it the right thing? And that's what a lot of the shareholders are are saying. Is it inconsistent for us to be doing this? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is the number. Kate in Milwaukee. Kate, good morning. You're at six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Uh, I think that Walgreens has every right to continue selling, and I don't think that they've ever marketed themselves as uh, a health food store or anything like that. You know, they they have a pharmacy. 
within a store, basically. Right. And you, and you, last time, I haven't been in a Walgreens in a long time. Well, that's not necessarily true, but you can, you can go, um, you, uh, they sell Doritos and they sell sugary sodas and things like that. They, they sell all kinds of things that aren't in line with the health and wellness. Right. If they, if that was all they were going for, then I would say, yeah, selling cigarettes probably is a bad idea. Right. But they're trying to offer convenience. I mean, they sell gift cards and right. greeting cards and everything under the sun there. Right. And and they have very convenient hours and things like that. So I think I, I don't think they should be uh, looked down on because this is a business business right. decision. And you don't find it inconsistent to be, you know, a, a, a far, not just a pharmacy, but I mean, they are trying to brand themselves. CVS is trying to brand themselves as like a. We're, we're concerned with health and things like that. They've got the clinics and stuff in there. You don't find it inconsistent with that branding to also be selling tobacco? No, because it's not inconsistent for them to be selling greeting cards and alcohol either. Right. Okay, you thanks know, for calling. I appreciate, appreciate the perspective. That, that's the thing. Now, there's also, I mean, I'm looking at this, the survey. CVS, um, in 2015, which was the first year that they did this, um, CVS had a 5% decrease in non-pharmacy sales um, across the board. And, you know, when you're talking about a company like CVS, a 5% decrease is a boatload of money. And and they say, and at least this is what they claim, they, they say that they believe that 5% decrease in in non-pharmacy sales, that the stuff that uh, Karen was just talking about, you know, the, the pop and the cosmetics and those things, um, they blame that on the decision to pull tobacco from its shelves because they say, hey, this, we think this hurt us in our business model because you had people who would come here to buy cigarettes and they'd also buy, again, other things as well. So, I mean, 5% is a huge drop. 414-799-1620 is the number. Andrew in Milwaukee. Andrew, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I'm actually, uh, I was a pharmacy intern, and I'm actually a pharmacist now at CVS. And uh, um, I think it was a great move by CVS making uh, to take cigarettes out of the pharmacy, because as a pharmacist now, um, you're always trying to promote health and wellness and trying to promote uh, smoking cessation, and it's totally inconsistent to be selling tobacco products and uh, um, trying to promote that same uh, message. What about, how do you respond to, like, our previous caller, Kate, who says, well, you know, you, you go into, like, a CVS. I'm thinking, there's a, there's a CVS right by where I live. I go in there from time to time. And yeah. they, they've got, they, 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 they have, you know, there's an aisle with chips and cookies and liquor and all sorts of other stuff that's arguably not healthy as well. If they're going to be consistent, shouldn't you take all that stuff out, too? Well, my argument would be um, every kind of everything in moderation, just like everybody should be doing. But uh, um, when you're, uh, when I'm actually, I work in a hospital now, and I would say a good half of the patients are coming in with COPD, right. having issues, all because of like, years and years and years of smoking. I mean, right. it's definitely. De- uh, the detriment to health. So your argument would be c- uh, cigarettes, there's all sorts of things that, that are bad for you, but cigarette smoking, is, cigarettes, tobacco products are in a particular category of bad for you. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And I mean, it just makes, and people at the end of their lives that have uh, end-stage COPD, it's just a miserable, it's just mis- they're just miserable. Okay. And you just see people coming in and out of the hospital all the time, the same people coming in and out. So I, I think that 
um, just as a pharmacy promoting health and wellness that Walgreens should make that move and uh, just get rid of tobacco products. Interesting. Thanks for the call. And again, there, there are there's clearly consequences to, to doing this. Um, like I say, you know, CVS says that, that they substan- they sustained a substantial drop in sales because of it. And I have no doubt. I have no doubt that that's true because my, my guess is there's a lot of people who – all right, you you have your place, your local place that you go to buy cigarettes, and when you're in there, okay, I need a couple other things here. I need to pick up some shampoo. I need to pick up whatever. You take away the cigarette purchases, or you drive somebody somewhere else to buy their cigarettes. They're also going to buy buying their shampoo and their soap and their whatever at that new place. Tom in Thienesville. Tom, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Uh, personally, as a smoker, I... Uh, the cost of cigarettes is ridiculous in some what, places. What is it? What is it? Now? Is it like? Is it like eight bucks a pack? Is it up to that? Uh, a little bit less than, than that. Okay. At Walgreens and Speedway. Okay. But I get up in the go to work in the middle of the night, and those are the only two places that are usually open. Okay. And I, that's where I get my cigarettes. Right. I won't buy them anywhere else because they're so, so expensive. And right. if Walgreens would stop selling them, I would stop going to Walgreens because I don't usually get anything else from them. I mean, that's just me personally. Right, right. Well, let me, I mean, I, I would assume that there's, okay, when you're in that Walgreens um, to buy your cigarettes, I would assume that there might be some occasions where you've also bought some other stuff because you're, you're there and, hey, I need I need shampoo or I need, you know, whatever. Um, so you would stop going to Walgreens in its entirety. Yes, because uh, shampoo, any other uh, health and beauty items or stuff like that, I can go right down the world right. to uh, Walmart where it's cheaper. Right. Walgreens has got some expensive prices. Right. Would it, if, if, let's say your local Walgreens store decided that they weren't going to sell cigarettes anymore, would that, do you think you would cut back or stop your smoking or would just be, okay, now I'm just going to Speedway all the time? Um, actually, I'm in the process of trying to quit back, uh, cutting, you know, quitting. So, uh, it might help, you know, jump, you know, uh, uh, quit date a little quicker. So, Right. Interesting. Well, again, and it, and it, see, it's th- this is, of course, what they they wrestle with. And one of the reasons that, that do I think do I think Walgreens has a right to sell cigarettes? I, I do. I do think that there is a little bit of an inconsistency. But I, I mean, I also appreciate, you know, nobody's talking about CVS pulling the liquor out of there. And at my local store, for example, the CVS store, they have a, a wide array of, of liquor a wide array of beer. There's a whole aisle that has like chips and in general uh, foodstuffs that I would describe under the overall category of being quote unquote crap. Uh, but, but you know, so they're continuing to sell that. But having said that, I appreciate that cigarettes and tobacco products are kind of in a whole different category. I, I think, you know, CVS certainly had the right to make that choice, just like Walgreens has the right to continue to sell um, cigarettes, but I will say this. I think this is the wave of the future. I think what you're seeing is a lot of pressure, and this is pressure coming from shareholders saying that even if we have to you know, lose a little bit of money, we're willing to make the stand. Now, the question is going to become, you know, if it results in a permanent loss of business and you lose those customers and you can't replace them, will the shareholders feel the same way? It's 1044, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
It is 1048, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. She's been in Milwaukee for over 50 years preaching love and kindness. A local Holocaust survivor joins WTMJ today. That is at 12.07. In about 15 minutes, we are going to be joined by Don Smiley, the CEO of... Milwaukee World Festivals uh, to talk about new developments at Summerfest. Then coming up at 1135, uh, we'll be joined by my friends Tracy Johnson and Susie Falk. It's WTMJ. It's our Week in Review. We will also be live streaming that on Facebook so you can check it out. All right. This was, to to me, a really interesting thing because so much— so much of what goes on in the world and our and our lives are our perception. And you during election seasons, you have pollsters who go out and will ask questions, do you think the country's on the right track or the wrong track? And a, a lot of times that gets misunderstood because you, you never know – if somebody says the country's on the wrong track, you, you never – know why that that is okay that's during the obama years you might say well the country's on the wrong track and it might be because you think barack obama was the president he's leading the country down the road to ruin so we're on the wrong track or it might be gee you've got these obstructionist republicans that are stopping this wonderful from president from doing all these great things so we're on the wrong track you, you never exactly understand what that is but in any event um fox news goes out and, and does a poll and what what they say is, um, are you and your family achieving the American dream? And interestingly enough, they say 40% of respondents say we have achieved the American dream. 43% of respondents say we are on the way to the American dream. And then 15% say the American dream is out of reach. All right. But just like right track, wrong track, to me, the question is always, okay. you you talk about the American dream. What what exactly does that mean? And I thought we would we would talk about this for a segment. 414-799-1620-800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll free talk line. When you hear the term American dream, what does that mean to you? Um, I mean, some of the things that they threw out, for example, was retiring comfortably, having a successful career, raising a family, contributing to the community, owning a home, whatever. But when you hear the term American dream, what what does that mean to you? And then we'll also talk about whether you know people are achieving it. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the American, uh, that's the, that's the um, Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. What is the American dream? To you, we discuss next. 1051, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ten fifty four, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ four one four seven nine nine one six twenty eight hundred eight seven seven one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll free talk line. Fox News goes out and they take this poll, and interestingly enough, the poll says. If you believe the results, the poll says 40 percent of the people responding have achieved the American dream. Another 43 percent say they are on the way to achieving the American dream. And only 15 percent say it is out of reach. Now, I find that to be interesting because if you listen to a lot of stuff in the mainstream media, you would get this idea that, that there is just this huge 
group of people who think the country is just going to you know where in a handbasket and and there's no way that life for us or our children can be better than our lives and the country is in this hopeless spiral but yet at least this poll which was taken you know uh, just recently says 86 percent of people think they've either achieved the american dream or they're on their way to it but the interesting question to me becomes okay what what does that mean when you end up saying american dream and as defined by people, um, it, it's various things. Retiring comfortably, having a successful career, raising a family, contributing to the community, owning a home. Those are all the different factors. 414-799-1620, 800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. When you hear that term, American dream, what does it mean to you? And you know, is it is it in reach for you? Is it in reach for other people? Because, candidly, while I think it changes over time, and when you look at home ownership, all right, maybe for a lot of people now, home ownership isn't necessarily the American dream like it was before. What does it mean? Let's talk to Sandy in Montello. Sandy, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. I believe the American dream starts with each individual person, um, and that's proper planning throughout your working career, making the right choices, being motivated to go to work every day, putting in the extra mile at work and being recognized so that you can perhaps get a raise while you're working and working hard. Um, It all starts with proper planning. Um, It's not how much you make. It's how much you save throughout your life. And my American dream will be um, in a few years when I can finally retire after working my whole life. Right. So for you, it would be retiring, retiring comfortably, you know, and, and being able to say, OK, I've worked hard all my life and now now I can step back and I cannot have worries. You're not going to necessarily buy a Learjet and be flying all over the world, but you can retire comfortably without having to worry about stuff. Correct. And with that being said, you know, it doesn't come easy. You need to work hard and, you know, you can't rely on the president, whoever that may be. To create your American dream, you have to create it yourself, right. and that's by working hard. Right, right. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let's talk to Lou in Brown Deer. Lou, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Uh, I think that uh, the American dream is existing. I'm 74 years old. I'm on Social Security disability, and I find it very, very hard at my age to exist. So this is the one thing that worries me now, because the costs are going prohibitive. Um, so the, the concern, you're living the American dream, you've retired, but you're worried about whether you're going to be able to continue to do that just because of all the things that are going on. Correct. The rents are getting astronomical for elderly, uh, and it's just scary. Well, it is. I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, thanks to call, Lou, that's, I think that's, you know, that, that is the issue, and that's kind of the concern. And to me, it's interesting because this is how things have just developed o- over the years. Like I say, I, you know, retiring comfortably, I think to your point, Lou, and to Sandy's point, that that's, I think for a lot of people, that would be one of the indicators of it. You know, you don't, you, you don't want to worry that you're going to be 75 years old and you're not going to be able to find a place to live or you're not going to be able to afford medications or food. So, I mean, I, I would think that retiring comfortably, to me, you know, candidly, 
you know, most of these things would be would be correct. Retiring comfortably, sure. Having a successful career, yeah. Uh, contributing to a community, um, I don't know. Raising a family, I, I understand why for some people that would be certainly a factor as well. It's all these different things that are coming into play. It means different things to different people. But I will tell you this: I hope, hope, hope we never get to a point where the American dream, however you define it. Um, isn't around and isn't obtainable. It is 1059. We're going to be talking to Don Smiley in less than 10 minutes about all the different stuff going on at Summerfest. Stick around. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are joined by the president and chief executive officer of Summerfest, my friend Don Smiley. Don, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Hey, big news. Now, we, you know, we talked about, in theory, a new amphitheater a few months ago, but now it, it sounds like it's going to become a reality. Well, it sure is. We had a big announcement yesterday, as you know, and uh, when we talked over the summer, um, you know, it was right on top of the list, Jeff. These, these buildings do have a certain life to them, and... You just can't wake up one morning and snap your fingers and have a new amphitheater. It takes a lot of planning and and um, right. uh, a lot of critical thinking around them. So um, we um, we were fortunate in landing American Family Insurance, and, it, and it's really an integrated sponsorship that we have with them. It's just not the amphitheater, but the amphitheater. Excuse me, amphitheater is obviously a very visible part of what we do here at Summerfest. Now, Don, and I know we talked about this before, a lot of people might look at that venue and say, hey, it, the, the Marcus, it, it's, it's a wonderful facility. Why do we really need to do something? I mean, it, it's not really that old. You have schools that are 50 or 60 years old. What, what, what is really the need to replace the facility now? Well, I, I think that would beg the question, if the taxpayers were paying for mm-hmm. it, they, they, you know, that, that may or may not be valid, that question, but this isn't a publicly funded building. Right. We're raising the money privately, and it only goes to the benefit of the fans. So everything we do in that building, we're going, I'm going to have a very close eye on fan-facing uh, elements and benefits to that building, and... I guess if I were a fan, I wouldn't really care how it was funded as long as it wasn't me that was funding it. Well, and, uh, as, a, and as a practical matter, too, Don, and like you were saying, you know, buildings, I, I have to imagine the entertainment industry that, you know, consumer tastes change. And while it, it's a nice building, you know, there's issues with restrooms, there's issue with access to restaurants and bars. I mean, there. there my guess is that the new facility that you're going to plan is going to be a much better experience for fans than the current one, without knocking the current oh, facility. Oh, there's no question about it. And, and, and really, I mean, the current building is what it is. It's going to be 30 years old this summer. They do have a life, uh, a useful life. And, you know, fans don't see what's behind the scenes and, and how much money it costs to keep that building up and running, not to mention trying to stay competitive on a global basis to book bands to come to that building and play because bands have their pick of the litter. They'll pick and choose where they want to play based on the facility, the amenities of the facilities, et cetera, et cetera. So 
if we don't do something like this, we're going to fall way behind in the area of competition for for uh, international touring stars, and that's not what this festival is about. We've been we've been aggressive around here in in building the ground or rebuilding the grounds, I should say, and we've been aggressive on the music side, and that's where we have to stay. The 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 other thing that I thought was interesting when I saw your construction schedule, that sounds aggressive too. You think you can get this done in less than a year? <laughs> We're kind of aggressive around here, um, but you know we we have a lot of construction experience here, Jeff, and um, we've thought long and hard about it. The preliminary plan calls for the demolition of the building following Summerfest 2019, and as soon as the building is down, we'll start building and have it up ready to go for Summerfest 20. Now, that's the plan. <laughs> a lot of things can get in the way of, of, of construction projects, but uh, we've been fortunate around here. I mean, we're in the midst of rebuilding the Miller Lite Oasis right now. Uh, right after that job, we will demolish the U.S. Cellular Stage, rebuild it, and at the same time, we will demolish the North Gate and create a new North Gate and box office and community plaza, which will all lead us right into the construction of the amphitheater. So we'll be busy here uh, for the next few years building, and frankly, it's going to go all into fans' benefits. And, and, and we do this. We, we go out and, and do these corporate sponsorships so that we're able to keep ticket prices low and, and, and create such a great value. When you look at our ticket prices versus Lollapalooza or Coachella or any of the other major music festivals around the country or the world, I mean, it, it really is a good value here. It, it, that's hard to argue that. You know, Don, one of the things that, that you and I have talked about publicly and privately over the years since you came here was from the fans' perspective, a lot of people think, okay, Summerfest, it's all about the bands. From the beginning, you understood the importance of, of infrastructure and the need mm-hmm. to continue to, to update that. And that, that's been one of your guiding philosophies. It ha- <clears throat> Excuse me, Jeff. It has been, and it will continue um, uh, to be that way as, as long as I'm here, because I believe that if the grounds are built and um, or rebuilt and created uh, with the fan in mind, and, and there's benefits and amenities for the fan, the fans will keep coming back. And so when I first arrived in June of '04, there was a lot of work to be done. Uh, for instance, we're, we're rebuilding the Miller, State, Miller um, Light Oasis for the second time since I've been here. So you can imagine what the old stage looked like and, and felt like. And, and I guess sometimes people don't really understand how much it costs to keep up this place because, you know, these buildings sit out in the wintertime and so on and so forth. They, they get used X amount of time during the year. It's not like a restaurant where you're in there 365 and if something goes wrong, boom, you fix it. I mean, you know, we find things cropping up on us all the time. You're, you're open for seven months, and then you're closed for five. And, you know, that's kind of hard on a building. It would be the same thing with a car. With a car. You can't drive a car for seven months and then put it away for five months and expect it to run the same way. So our, my emphasis is really on the grounds. And if we do our job in that regard, the fans will be happy and the bands will, and the bands will sign, and we will continue to get the world-class talent that we have over the years. 
You know, I, I'm as somebody who's been going to Summerfest since the the seventies. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm always careful amazed. Careful now, when... <laughs> you're careful now. You've given a lot of inside information. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's I, I I was there the night George Carlin got arrested. I know people claim that I really was, but I mean, I, whenever I'm down there, I'm always amazed. I mean, I remember how it was when you had the the old main stage that was on the north end of the grounds, and it, it was essentially benches, you know, and then right. just open space, and right. there were porta potties. That that was the dominant thing that was there. And not, not too much of it was paved. And I, I walk around, you know, every year, and I'm just amazed that at how, now now you actually have like real bathrooms and stuff. And there's plenty oh, I, of yeah, them. And, and and really, I mean, the the restrooms we built out of are outside of the Briggs and Stratton stage. I mean, they're, they're for bathrooms, they're absolutely beautiful for an event space. Um, the new South Gate, the new box office, the BMO Harris Pavilion, um, mm-hmm. Harley Davidson. I mean, they've all been rebuilt. Um, as I said, USL is on the schedule to uh, be completed for Summerfest 18. Uh, Miller uh, Miller Light Oasis be ready for the 50th edition this summer. So we've got a lot going on, and this new project uh, that kick-started the amphitheater will, I think the fans are really going to love it. You know, when you think about sound and lights and technology and so on and so forth, that stuff changes so quickly right in front of your eyes that you really have to be, you know, on top of it. And when you're building something like this for the future, all of that has to be taken into consideration. There's one thing I'd like to touch on, Jeff, just for your listeners. You know, what we do like about this amphitheater is the way that the seats are configured in relationship to the stage. Mm -hmm. So while we're going to tear out the seats and tear out the concrete that the seats are um, attached to, the seating is going, the seating treads, the configuration is going to be the same as it is now. 18,000 seats with 5,000 lawn seats. That's a perfect size for us. The artists love it because they feel the fans are right on top of them. And, and our fans like it because they feel they're close to the artist. So that's one thing that is, while the materials are going to be brand new, the configuration is going to be the same. And the other thing we're going to try to do is save the roof. So if we don't have to take that roof off and demolish it, that would be a big savings to the project. Now we'll have to get in there and treat it and repaint it exterior and interior, but we would like to save the roof. Yeah, one of the things, Don, I'm, and I mean, I'm not an architect. I'm going to be fascinated to see how you do is, given the fact that you're doing this on essentially the same footprint and you're keeping the, the size as far as seating the same, is, is how you're going to find the space to add the additional restrooms and the bars and all these other amenities that I know you want to put in. But I guess that's for smarter people than me to figure out. Well, you know what, Jeff? I, I'll, I'll t- you, I didn't want to say that, but <laughs> you're, you're really good on radio. But I, I'm not sure I'd want you trying up where the bathrooms are supposed to go. Right, yeah. no, there's there's X amount of square footage to play with. You know, I mean, when you, you when when you think about it, and, and there's some wasted square footage in that building right now. So when when, when it when it gets scraped, and you have a footprint to work with, it's amazing what architects can do now in, in reconfiguring um, the uh, mm-hmm. public space, if you will, uh, whether it's restaurants, hospitality areas, uh, restrooms, et cetera, et cetera, ADA access, 
and so on. I mean, this goes right down to, okay, how are we going to vend beer? Right. We've been vending beer in that building the same way for close to 30 years. Well, beer vending has changed in that time. So we'll get with Miller Coors and we'll ask them, okay, can you talk to us about the most recent building that you opened up, whether it's an NFL stadium, MLB, whatever. Tell us how you think we should vend beer here. That's a big part of our operation, obviously. So we we have a lot of homework to do. Uh, We're going to take our time and get it right. Don, are you continually surprised at the support you get from the business community? Because it, it seems, you know, you're, you're talking about these very aggressive schedules and the rebuilding and all these upgrades. The, the, the community, the business community, not only in Milwaukee, but in Wisconsin, have certainly rallied around Summerfest. Well, there's no question about that, Jeff. And, and if, you know, but for that that sponsorship, we really wouldn't be able to do this. I mean, this this organization, this 501c3, would not be able to afford all that CapEx. Um, that we've poured into this place over the years. So it, it takes a very aggressive company to stay in front of the sponsors. So we do stay aggressive, and, and we do create relationships that are long-lasting because it's a very competitive environment out there, whether it's the NBA or MLB or or any any host of events that you can think of in this city that are looking for sponsors. I mean, the sponsor pool uh, sometimes gets pretty small. So we stay in front of it. Uh, we, We know we have a large mega event to sell. We have a lot of eyeballs that are attractive to sponsors and advertisers. So it's those relationships that you create along the way and nurture them that that enables you to do deals when the time comes and get the job done. Don Smiley, President and CEO of Summerfest, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on the big announcement. Looking forward to seeing Summerfest this year and the new stage at uh, Miller and all the exciting improvements. Because, like I said, I've been there since the 70s. I'm, I'm hoping to be continuing to go there for decades to come. <laughs> Jeff, thank you very much. I must say that... Um, Steve Marcus started this ball rolling a long time ago when when he was approached and asked to put money in this building. And, you know, just to publicly thank the Marcus family would be in order, in, in order and respectful. And um, Greg was at our press conference yesterday, and, and we did acknowledge him and his family. So I just wanted to say that in closing. Absolutely. Take care, Don. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, Don Smiley, President and CEO of Summerfest. And again, it's, you know, one of the things that, uh, when we think about Summerfest, you think everybody pays attention to the entertainment lineup. But the, the other side of it is the business side. And when you think about all the different festivals, large and small, that have come and gone over the last 50 years, um, and then you look at Summerfest, and you think about where it started and where it is now. Um, you know, Don Smiley is, in my opinion, a great steward of that. Um, people that work at Summerfest, great stewards of that. And um, it truly is. It's a treasure. 1122, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1124, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Spring training is just around the corner. Get ready for the baseball season with Brewers on Deck. Hear interviews with players, learn about the season's upcoming promotions, and get all the sounds of the baseball season this Sunday. Tune in to Brewers on Deck Live starting at noon here on WTMJ. See, I did not take Don's comment there personally because I, I, 
whatever else, I, whatever else I, I might do, I do not play an architect on the radio. But it, I mean, that was one of the questions that was coming to mind because if you've been at the Marcus Amphitheater, the there, there's no question they need more bathrooms. <laughs> if, if you've ever been there when you've got a sold out show, they need more bathrooms. They, they clearly, I think, need more bars. They need more restaurants. There's that ability, and it was it's always intriguing to me how you do these type of things because they're not going to expand the footprint and they're not going to increase or decrease the seating. So if you've got the same footprint, it's like, okay, how are you going to put in the bars? How are you going to put in the new bathrooms? And I think that's always one of the challenge with the architects, and I'm sure there is a bunch of wasted space. And the, the way you approach things in 2017 are probably different than the way you preach, approach stuff, you know, in 1980, whenever, when it was first built. But no, I, I don't play an architect on the radio, but I have to tell you, as somebody who goes to several of those shows, I, I am very, very excited to see what they end up coming up with. <laughs> 1128, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, one of my favorite stories today, Sam Shields, who, of course, the probably soon-to-be former Green Bay Packers player. He's been out all year with a, a concussion. you got to wonder if he's ever going to play again. He gets busted in October up in Ashwaubenon. Um, apparently, like, agents were tracking a package of dope that was sent to his house. So it gets sent to his house, and according to the allegations, he um, <laughs> he answers the door. So an agent, you know, goes up, uh, knocks on the door. An investigator with the Brown County Task Force goes up, knocks on the door to his apartment. Um, Shields answers the door while talking on a cell phone and smoking a marijuana-laced cigar. (laughs) Oops. Okay, then Shields shows the agent the location of other marijuana in the apartment, which he claimed belonged to someone else. According to the complaint, the agent then goes in the garage, finds a box, um, become priority mail from Parker, Colorado. So, I mean, apparently they've been watching it. But he shows up, you know, smoking a marijuana cigar, you know, when the, and the cops answer the door talking on, on the cell phone. So the story is that, that he, he's now hired a celebrity lawyer out of New York to represent him on, on these these criminal charges. Okay, here, here would be, you know, my advice. Mr. Shields doesn't need a good lawyer. He, he needs a good jury or a good judge <laughs> because when the cops bang on your door and you go to the door smoking a marijuana blunt, it's 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 one of those things that what what can you kind of say? But he's hired a celebrity lawyer who's going to be representing him on the pot charge. As a recovering lawyer myself, if I wanted to give him some free legal advice, well, you wouldn't know where to start on this particular one. But um, Sam Shields, at least you, you give you give him credit for honesty. Yep, I'm smoking the dope. Yeah, it belonged to somebody else. Here's the package. Go figure. <laughs> It's 1134, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Welcome to our Week in Review. We do this at this time every week. I am the thorn between the two roses, joined by my dear friend Susie Falk from Falk Group Public Relations. Good Hello. Good morning. Hello. And Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. Happy Friday. Bo- both movers and shakers in the community. <laughs> we are also live streaming this on Facebook, so you can check that out. Like I say, I am the thorn between the two roses. Ladies, I just got done uh, having an extensive conversation with uh, President and CEO of Summerfest, Don Smiley. Big announcement this week that Summerfest has plans for the new amphitheater. No tax dollars involved. Tracy Johnson, how big a deal is this? 
This is a huge deal for Summerfest, especially given it's their 50th anniversary. Um, this Marcus Center has been there for 30 years. This was an awesome, awesome venue for, for 30 years. But times have changed. We need something new. Um, I think they were struggling to attract some of the artists um, who needed more technology and more amenities. Um, but this is really outstanding. This is, the, like the, I think, the third project announcement that they've had over the last five months leading up uh, to this. It's going to be just a, a fantastic addition. Uh, to the lakefront too. I mean, think about it. All the great things that are going down there with the lakefront gateway project, the couture, uh, the new freeway access. Uh, this is a huge deal. Susie Falk, um, you, you are probably like me. We, we've been going to Summerfest for a number of years, Thanks, and Jeff. well, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's that's what I'm. Okay, I've probably been going for a few good. more years there, but okay, Steve but, but, <laughs> but but um, the, the infrastructure improvements that they have continued to make at Summerfest are, have always have just amazed me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and thank goodness that they do it. I tell you, um, the potty issue, you know, for a while. The, the bathrooms, yeah. We're just yeah. really glad they've got a lot of ladies' rooms. It's it's a fantastic um, break, and it goes fast. So the, the infrastructure improvements have been incredible. I was listening to Don speak with you just a few minutes ago, and, you know, it's the behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't really think about when we go, but what we do know is that when we're, when we're there, we're having an excellent experience. But you gotta you got to stay on top of it, and, you know, the amphitheater is aging, thanks to the Marcus family, for 30 years of a fantastic fantastic venue but it's time to put to put a new one in there you think about how av has changed digital communications um even beer distribution you know we're going to be getting our beer a whole different way in the next few years but it's not just the american family insurance uh spending on the amphitheater it is what they're doing in the community i mean it's it's the community outreach it's going into the city you know i love that that they're going to be kind of reaching out to to not just people that are they're coming to them but to go into the backyards of people who who maybe don't usually get to experience Summerfest. You know, I think about all the different things that have been parts of the community that have come and gone over the years. The, the circus parade, mm-hmm. for example. Um, you know, the, I always call it the GMO, the golf tournament, mm-hmm. the Greater Milwaukee Open, you know, which had various names. A- and all these things come and they're really popular for a while, and then tastes change or people change or whatever, and they fade. Summerfest is the the one one of the institutions that certainly it, it grows more and more popular every mm-hmm. year. It, it really does, and it puts us on the map. I was in Chicago last Saturday, and we won't get into that, but I was with some you know, pretty progressive thinkers, civic-minded from all over Illinois and elsewhere, and they found out I was from Milwaukee, and they asked me, you know, what wow, what's going on? You know, you guys not only have Summerfest, but you got a lot of great stuff right. in Milwaukee. So Summerfest may be a hook to get people to know more about us, but then you come up here and you experience Milwaukee and all the fantastic stuff it has to offer. The, the hotels in the Third Ward, the restaurants, you know, the MSO moving into the Grand Theater. If you haven't experienced some of those other cultural institutions in Milwaukee, you know, you should. And we have outsiders from Milwaukee coming in to take advantage of those. So we're, we're in a really great spot right now. Tracy Johnson, you remember the first time you went to Summerfest? I, I do. I do. And, and I, the concert, it was a Steve Winwood concert. And I was it, there. It was, it, was a, it was a great time. And I, I don't remember the year, but I was one of those, the pin collectors, right? So I'm a, a little nostalgic. And my mom talks about how she would take me in my stroller when it was like dirt, dirt, roads and dirt oh, yeah. paths and oh, yeah. things like that um this is just this is just <laughs> okay that awesome. one just really did make me feel old because <laughs> i remember i mean the, the main stage used to be on the north end of oh, the yeah. grounds and it was that was it it was there were there were bleachers just just mm-hmm. and Wood. then there it was were free then the, right and then and there was just like 
like grass and dirt and whatever. And you'd go down there with a bunch of people and you'd put out your blanket and then you'd go off in shifts to kind of see the rest of the grounds. And I was there the night that George Carlin got arrested for saying, and I see people, people claim that. And then they also claim to have been at the ice bowl. I was not at the ice bowl, but I was at (laughs) Summerfest the night that George Carlin got arrested for the seven words you can't say on TV or in Milwaukee. Fantastic. Well, I I think, but but here's the thing. They're stepping it up. This is not a, this is not your, your mom or dad's old festival. I mean, this is top of the line, like mm-hmm. top line right. acts. I cannot wait to see who no. they announce next. Did you get that out of, out of them? Are they going to have any announcements? Oh, I didn't ask Agreed. him about oh, that. I, but, okay. You know, Bob Babish has been doing some fantastic work, and I was reading an article about how Paul McCartney came to be, and it was because right. the Stones was there, or vice mm-hmm. versa. And, you know, I think those big-name bands talk with each other, the, right. the producers, the people that book the acts, and once they find out that the venue is going to be over the top in Milwaukee, it's going to be a slam dunk. Because I know, I mean, that, that, that's what I think Don Smiley was alluding to, because you, you go into the Marcus, and... Other than there's an issue sort of with the potties in there and, and you know, maybe some of the, the those food stands and stuff. But I think for the average person, you look at this and say, oh, this looks perfectly fine. But, you know, you don't get to see the guts. You don't get to see behind the, the scenes. And one of the things they're saying is when we're when we are competing for the Rolling Stones or for Paul McCartney or whatever, those bands, those artists are used to going into these like world class facilities with the amazing dressing rooms and things like that. And you. You, you have to have mm-hmm. those amenities if you're going to compete for mm-hmm. those type of acts. Well, it's the Bucks conversation. We just had this conversation about the Bucks stadium. You know, you got to have a world-class stadium if you're going to have a world-class team. So here we go. Coming up next, the road goes on forever and the Sheriff Clark saga continues. Stick around. It's 1141. You're listening to the WTMJ Weekend Review. I'm Jeff Wagner with Susie Falk and Tracy Johnson. It's 1144, Jeff Wagner, The Week in Review, joined by Susie Falk from Falk Group PR and Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. <sighs> Ladies, the Sheriff David Clark saga continues. Um, the, the latest situation is a guy says he had an incident with the sheriff on the airplane coming back from Dallas that led to him being detained. Chris Abley is now involved. You've got newspaper editorials. You've got the sheriff fighting back. You've got the sheriff today saying, I I think you should boycott one of the local TV stations for unjust coverage. Okay, Tracy Johnson, how, how does this play out and... Where do we go from here? Well, when I when I look at Sheriff Clark, I see him as, as almost two separate people. He's first of all the the top law enforcement guy in the in the in the county, and then secondly, he's this kind of political lightning rod, larger than life uh, lightning rod for really a lot of the things that that Donald Trump was saying during right. his campaign. Um, you know, he gets high marks um, for his facility. Um, he gets high marks from the people, the voters who keep him in office. His margins over the years have gotten bigger and bigger. Um, but if he could just solve this problem with the people he's supposed to work with, with the Chris Abley and, and the media, I think he could be so much more productive. No love lost there. Susie. The people he's supposed to work with are the people like this Mr. Black at the airport who spent six uh, or 15 minutes talking with six sheriffs and, and uh, having two dogs sniff at him because he looked at Sheriff Clark funny. To be honest, I'm afraid to say anything that I really think because I don't want to be knocked out. I mean, Sheriff oh, Clark ridiculous. is a bully, and he will say things that are absolutely inappropriate to people who don't deserve to be spoken to that way. And I think Chris Abley nailed it when he said, don't we deserve better than this? So the claim that this 
Mr. Black filed is now with the County Audit Services Department. I don't think they have much teeth in it, but I think that they can review this. Uh, you know, Governor Walker has been asked to consider, you know, removing sheriff. Which isn't Clark. going to happen. It's not going to happen. They're right. friends, you know. And, and, and well, it's not just that. I mean, the statute says you, you have the ability, I guess, to remove a sheriff for cause. But historically, that's been like with the DA, uh, with, where, it, where you have a, a DA who is accused of, you know, criminal activity or something like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't risen to that level. But I mean, the other thing is, I mean... If people think that Sheriff Clark has lost the support in the community, there's always stuff like recalls. Lord knows we know how to do well, that that's around right. here. And so I think it, you know, it comes down to the public. What do you want? Do you, is this good enough, or do you do we yeah. deserve better? So well, why, and why do they have heard. to fight all of this in the in the press? I think that's the the, the shame in all of this is everything seems he's a right. lightning rod, and everything gets put in the newspaper, gets spun. Well, it's well, he also, also makes. You mean he makes headlines in the newspaper? You know, they they he feels it too. Right. Well, the the newspaper. I mean. It gets clicks and eyeballs yeah. because he's a lightning rod and he is polarizing. I guess I've never, I never had an issue, and I don't. I, I've known David Clark for years and years, and I think he would tell you that some of us who do what I do for a living help have helped him get reelected. I don't have an issue with the, 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 the campaigning for, for, for example, for Trump or anything like that. I, I do have issues if, as a taxpayer in Milwaukee County, if things you do end up getting the county sued and perhaps having taxpayers on the line for that. Does he run for re-election, Susie? Uh, you know, I wish he would start a reality TV show, honestly. I think he would do quite fine in a reality TV show, P- probably. You think he runs for re-election, Tracy? I think he's got a higher calling, and I think something's going to happen. He's going to get either swiped up by the administration or or something else. He's just, at some point, He's going to get fed up with it, and at some point, everybody's just going to get fed up with it. We're going to find I, another solution, I, and we're going to move on. I, 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 I well, I, I agree. I, I think I, I, I would be shocked if he runs again. I think whether it's as a national commentator or a position, you know, some high-profile non-cabinet level position in the Trump administration, I think that's what uh, David Clark's future is. Okay, Governor Walker makes news earlier this week by announcing that he wants welfare reform. One of the things he he wants to do is to expand the work requirement for people receiving food stamps. The way it works right now is if you're an able-bodied adult without children, um, you're supposed to either work or be in job training 80 hours a month. He wants to expand that to people with children. Susie, good idea or bad idea? Uh, You know, this idea I don't like because it involves kids and it involves food. I have a hard time with this one. There were some things that he said that did make sense, which I support, and that includes tax credits to um, people who have disability that are are working. It includes tax credits to um, those who are aging out of the foster system. Um, I think there's some really good stuff in there, but I really don't like the idea of punishing pe- people, particularly when they have kids and when it involves nutrition. Well, okay, what, why you say punishing? Why does why does saying if if you're able-bodied, um, you, you have to either be in job training or if you have access to jobs, working for at least part time? Why does that Why does that punish a family? No, that's not punishing a family. I'm saying that he's thinking about hitting families who. It's the food shares. I think that the punishment is going to be with fa- the parents if they have children and they're not meeting the requirements, which is about, what, 80 hours a week working, right. that they're going to be uh, the, somehow, the, Right, the amount yeah, would be reduced. Well, and here, I, do you know what the amount is? Because I don't think that what? that amount has been clear, and I think it's coming out in the budget. So I don't know all the details, okay. but it doesn't sound good. Tracy. Well, and, and your your word that punishment is the, is the, is the sticking point. I think it's more of a, an enticement to say, 
we are going to help you find a job. I don't know anybody who doesn't have a job that doesn't want to find a job. And if you are focusing on this like a laser beam, I, I think this is a good thing. And I would think the people who are on this program would want this. And it, it, they're going to find ways to um, maybe lengthen the amount of time that if you're not meeting the requirement, you could still get those food shares. So it, this isn't punitive. This isn't meant as punishment. It's meant as an enticement so we can get people back working. I See, like it. To, to me, here's the key. And, and I asked the governor this when I had an opportunity to interview him earlier this week. It's are, are there are there really jobs that are out there? And I know that the governor and people that you know we all know, like Alberta Darling, say yes, there are because mm-hmm. obviously I, I agree with you absolutely, Tracy, that you you want you want people to not be on these entitlement programs forever. But the key is, of course, that there has to be when somebody gets the job training, there has to be jobs that they have access to, mm-hmm. or else you know. But, it but here's the other key: is is you have to be willing. If you don't have a job and you don't have a skill that there are jobs for, you have to be willing to take the training for the jobs that are right. available. Right. And not everybody can be, uh, you know, the CEO of a company or work at a, you know, or a, run a their own PR chef, firm. Run a PR <laughs> firm. There are tech, technical technical jobs that need filling sure. and and that I think are available. Okay, at the okay. Very, very quickly. Big news this week, of course, the Green Bay Packers come one game short of making the Super Bowl. I was going to be in Houston broadcasting the show from Houston all next week, but um, oh. I will be here instead. All right, they come a game short. Um, what Was the Packers season a success, Susie oh, Falk? a huge success. You know what? That was so much fun to watch. It was such a disappointing game, but all in all, they looked fantastic. They were playing great as a team. I think they just ran out of steam. I'll tell you, the spill over the business that took place in the state, Miller Coors, and all the beer they sold, and all the businesses in Green Bay that you know made a lot of money because of the playoffs. It was a great season. I think the, the biggest success in this was hashtag run the table. I mean, that was <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, especially though coming into the season, people expected great things of the Packers, and I think early on they said, "Oh boy, what are we looking yeah. at here?" Then. You know, Aaron Rodgers. It was yeah, it was a bad first part of that season. But I I was doing we we do this thing on Monday mornings with Wayne Larrabee. I was doing the Monday morning quarterbacks two weeks ago, and there was a guy who. This is after they had beaten Dallas, and there was a guy who called up who wanted to complain about the play calling, and I was kind of like, they they just beat Dallas for good. I I mean, was it disappointing that they didn't make the Super Bowl? Yeah, it was. But my my goodness, they were one of the four teams out of thirty two left. I mean, I think it was an incredibly Mm -hmm. successful season and quite a run. Now moving forward. Maybe a couple defensive backs or something, but there, there, there's some work to be done. Um, coming up next, we've got our Right Stuff Awards. Stick around. It's the Week in Review. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. It's 1153-620-WTMJ. 1156, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's the Week in Review. We do this this time every week. Our Right Stuff Awards, attaboys, individuals, entities, institutions that deserve credit for doing the right thing. Susie Falk, you're first. Okay, collaborative education initiatives. There are two going on right now. One is M-Cubed. It's UWM, MATC, and MPS working together to ensure college preparedness for kids. But the other one I really like is Building to Learn Consortium. It's a group of um, schools and education officials and industry working together, here we go, to train Milwaukee area youth for the skilled trades. And we talk about the skills gap all the time. Okay, this is a path to get there. And industry is working with these kids and showing them how to build stuff. So they're using their hands. They're going to be great apprentices. And it's just a really exciting um, initiative. Tracy Johnson, Right Stuff Awards. All right, my Right Stuff this week goes to Senate and congressional leaders in, in Washington. Uh, you saw Mitch McConnell 
Paul Ryan get behind President Trump on some of his immigration reforms? And I think what they're they're learning is if you can't beat him, join him. I think this unified message is going to move things forward because Donald Trump is going to do what he is going to do, whether you agree with him or not. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And my Right Stuff Award, I, I actually I, I hate to double back on things that we, we've discussed, but it, it's got to go to Don Smiley and all the folks at Summerfest. Mm-hmm. I cannot I cannot tell you what a big story I, I think this is. If you look at, the, the, of course, the, the story this week is there's going to be a, a new amphitheater, but it comes on the heels of the report that uh, they're rebuilding the Miller Light Oasis for this year. For next year, they're going to be rebuilding the U.S. Cellular Connection stage. You've now got that new Briggs and Stratton stage. When you think back on all the infrastructure improvements that have been made to Summerfest, over the years and all the different festivals nationwide that have come and gone over the years and then you, you see Summerfest is here it is growing it is thriving it is surviving I agree with both of you when you were talking about the economic impact that Summerfest has in the community I mean to me it, it's very clear Don Smiley and the folks at Summerfest this is what the right stuff is all about and a shout out to American Family you know who you know has decided apparently to, to come up and to partner with the Milwaukee community in order to have this wonderful event event. Okay, we are just about out of time. WTMJ Today is coming up in just a couple minutes. I am back 8.30 Monday morning when we do this all again. Thank you, Ms. Falk. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. We'll see you next week. And have a great weekend. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.